Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Today, Pastor Murphy is going to give us a more detailed outline of the doctrines taught in chapters 1 through 8 of the Book of Romans. Tonight, I want to deal with the third sermon in terms of introduction. I, I want to talk to you tonight about the contents of the book of Romans. In other words, I want to ask the question tonight and answer it. What is the teaching of this epistle? What is the book of Romans all about? And in the process, I want to give you an analysis of this book so that in your mind you can follow the Apostle Paul's thoughts. You know, it's one thing to say you know the book of Romans. It's another thing to follow the process of Paul's logic. And once you get a, a grasp of Paul's logic by in the book of Romans, it is one of the clearest understandings of salvation. And if you can get yourself grounded in, in what Paul teaches in respect to this subject, believe you me, most of your fears and your uncertainties will disappear once you get a grasp of what Paul teaches in the book of Romans. Now, I, I am doing this tonight, this analysis quite deliberately, because I believe it's essential that you grasp the overall view of a book before you attempt to deal with the various minute parts of the argument that Paul has. You've got to understand the whole, and after you understand the whole, you can come to the individual part. But if you begin to deal with the individual part, you will always be misled because you don't understand the general whole, the general theme that Paul is giving in this particular chapter. By the way, this is why most people have difficulty with chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. Most people have problems with those chapters. And uh, especially chapters 6, 7, and 8, people misinterpret those three chapters. And I would hazard a guess to say that most Baptists misinterpret those three chapters. And we'll talk about that very shortly. But I want to suggest to you that the problem why people misinterpret those chapters is because they have not grasped the strategic, overall, holistic view of the book. If they can just take that strategic, holistic view of the book, those chapters that confuse so many people would become with greater clarity in the process. So I, I want uh, us to look at the epistle. I want to give you a bird's eye view of the epistle. And I want you to see the mighty genius of the Apostle Paul in his arguments in connection with this whole doctrine of salvation. And I believe that uh, it will help you in the process to understand this epistle as we deal with the details in some other, uh, other sermons. Number one. First, uh, let me give you the two main divisions of this epistle. The two main divisions of this epistle are from chapter 1 to chapter 11. That's the first division. And you will find that in chapter 1 to chapter 11, the Apostle Paul's main focus is on doctrine. Everything in that section is about doctrine. And then when you come to the second section, chapter 12 to chapter 16, you find that that last section of the epistle, the Apostle Paul deals with practice. So what Paul does is that having given this doctrine in the first 11 chapters, from the next chapters 12 to chapter 16, the Apostle Paul then applies that doctrine to the life of the church. This is always Paul's method. It's always the, the method of all the epistles. You'll always find that before they ever start talking about how you can live, they always deal with some kind of a doctrine. But because of this doctrinal faith, this doctrinal belief, then you begin to live out that doctrine in your daily life. It's the perennial method that you'll find throughout the presentation of the 
uh, of the, the writers of the Bible. And you find that that is Paul's method when he's teaching theology. He never talks about doctrine alone. He never gives you facts and information and knowledge without bringing that information and knowledge to say to you, okay, I've told you this, now this is how you need to live. See? Because believe you me, a lot of people know theology. A lot of people have knowledge, a lot of people have facts. But when you look at their lives, it's as though the facts don't exist. It only exists in their brain. See? And Paul was leery of that. He always wanted that you must take what you know and work it out in your life. And Paul didn't leave you to find out how to work it out. He specifies in, in, in the practical section. Now this is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to deal with those situations. That's the masterful hand of the Apostle Paul. The real problem therefore when we begin to deal with this epistle is not to deal with the major divisions. We can see the major divisions very clearly. Chapter 1 to 11 doctrine. Chapter 12 to 13 dealing with practice. The problem comes in when we start to subdivide the first section. Chapters 1 to 11. That is where the problem comes in in the process. And I'll tell you where our problem lies in this regard. Most of us follow Dr. Schofield in our Schofield Bible. I don't know if you've got one. But most people follow the outline that Mr. Schofield has created about this chapter. And, and quite frankly, this is how Schofield divides the, the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters. Chapters 1 to 4, he says, Paul is dealing with justification. He said, they said chapters 5 to 8, Paul is dealing with sanctification. And then in chapters 9 to 11, it said that Paul is dealing with dispensational truth. It's a parenthesis where Paul begins to focus on Israel and his program for God. See? And, and most people buy that. Here's the problem. It is true that chapters 1 to 4, the, the theme is justification by faith. No question about that. The real problem is, what is chapter 5, 6, 7 and 8 about. Scofield said it's about sanctification. But I will challenge you to go through chapters 5, 6, 7 and 8 and find the word sanctification there. It is not there. See? That's not what that theme is about. And uh, we'll talk about what the Apostle Paul is teaching in those chapters. And we'll come to that to give you an understanding of those chapters. And I think this is where we differ uh, to some extent within Baptist circles as to what those are about. But I want to explain to you why that chapter is not, those chapters are not dealing with sanctification. I would tell you, if we were dealing with sanctification, you must find sanctification somewhere. But you go through word for word, line for line, and take a microscope, and you will never find that word sanctification. It's not there. So what's the theme that Paul is dealing with in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8? We'll talk about that. And then I think you'll begin to see the, the, the wonder and the glory and the marvel of this great epistle that Paul writes uh, because of what Paul's emphasis is there. Now, let me suggest to you uh, this evening a more accurate outline of this great book of the epistle. Let me suggest to you this is what Paul writes about. First of all, in chapters 1, verses 1 to 15, you have two things. You have Paul giving preliminary salutation. And then you also find that Paul gives a general introduction to his theme. Now, the theme that Paul is going to write about, he even tells us in verse 1. He said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be apostle, separated unto what? The gospel of God. That's the theme. You will find that the apostle Paul is going to expand that theme, elaborate that theme, emphasize that theme, and look at that theme from different angles. But the Apostle Paul is dealing with the gospel of Christ. And he tells us in the very first verse, this is what I'm going to be dealing with, the gospel of Christ. 
And the, the, the theme and the subject, therefore, is what the Apostle Paul is going to write about has to do with the gospel. And then the question is asked, what then is this gospel? It is then that we find in, in verses 16 that Paul tells us until the end of uh, chapter 4 what this gospel is all about. And Paul elaborates on the great theme of the gospel in terms of justification by faith alone. And the gist of the essence of what Paul says in Romans to the Romans Christians is this. The good news from God is that God himself has introduced a way of saving men by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the theme. That's, that's the good news. That's the glad tidings. That God has made a way to save people by faith in Christ alone. And that's why Paul says, by the way, and because he got a grasp of this great theme, that Paul says in verse 16, that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. And when Paul said, I'm not ashamed, by the way, uh, I am told that that expression is a particular form, a uh, literary form in the Greek language. What Paul is saying is, I am proud of the gospel. See, that's what he's really saying. When he said, I'm not ashamed, what he really means, I am proud of this gospel. I am overwhelmed by this gospel. See. It's because this gospel has power. So Paul is saying that God is doing something. And what God is doing, God is doing it through Christ. And he goes on in verse 17 to tell us that what God is doing is that God is giving to man Christ righteousness. So that when we begin to talk about salvation, we now see salvation as a gift and not a product of human works. That's the theme that Paul is dealing with. It's the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the way that God has created to make man righteous. And he's done that through Jesus Christ, imparting Christ's righteousness to us. And so now that a man is saved, not by his own works, not by his own efforts, not by his own deeds, not by his own righteousness. And by the way, no one has ever been saved that way. It's just that people deluded themselves in the process. I'll bring a quotation sometime during the, the, the preaching on this series I don't know if you know this, that the, and I don't like to pick out any one church, but I think it needs to be said sometimes. And the Catholic Church says, if any man says that a man is saved by faith alone, let him be anathema. <laughs> let him be a curse. <laughs> but yet the Bible makes it very clear, that's the only way to be saved. Through faith and faith alone. But here is the church itself saying, if any man said a man is saved by faith and faith alone, let him be a curse. Do you understand why there's such a, a pole of difference between the Baptist ministry and the Catholic Church and why the twain cannot meet? Because we take the Bible very seriously. And you cannot dilly-dally with a doctrine but just, because if this doctrine is not known well, if this doctrine is not preached, if this doctrine is not central to the church, see, and if we lose this, believe me, we lose everything else. This is the very foundation and which a man comes into the kingdom of God. Uh, how can we dare entertain any doctrine that is contrary to what Paul is teaching here? God is doing something. That's the gospel. But what God is doing, he is doing it in Christ. And what he's doing in Christ is that he's, he's making Christ's righteousness available to a person who believes in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the essence of the gospel. See? So that is what Paul is doing in this chapter. That's his message. And he's so thrilled about it. He says he's not ashamed. By the way, 
If you go through the book of Romans, you'll find that there are six key words that you find again and again that Paul hits on. God, righteousness, Christ, faith, belief. You'll find that those words, he pounds them again, he pounds them again, again. Because that is his general theme. See? That's the great theme that Paul deals with in this chapter. So, that's his theme. The next thing that Paul does is that he works out in great detail what and why this gospel is needed. And he gives an explanation and does an expansion. And he argues that everybody needs this gospel. And so in chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of the first chapter, the Apostle Paul shows that the Gentiles need this gospel. And he shows them that the Gentiles are desperate in need of this gospel. And he brings 19 indictments against the Gentiles. He mentions 19 of the worst forms of moral sins that you could ever conceive. By the time he ends chapter number 1, the Apostle Paul is saying to the Gentiles, Hey, you need this gospel. See? So he is bringing the Gentiles under the condemnation of God. And under the wrath of God. And he's saying to them, if you're going to escape, you have to find it in Christ and Christ alone in the glad tidings. You must be justified by faith and faith alone. He does that in chapter 1, verse 18 to the end. In other words, the Apostle Paul points out very clearly that the Gentiles need this gospel. Then in chapter 2, the whole of chapter 2, you know what he does? He shows the Jews that they need this gospel equally. Now in spite of the fact that, that they had the law and they had all the privileges uh, of God's chosen people, the Apostle Paul said they were never able to keep the law. See? They were hypocrites. They would say one thing and do something else. So not only do the Gentiles need this gospel... The Apostle Paul points out in chapter 2, the whole of chapter 2, he goes into minute detail to show them the Jews likewise need this gospel. Because while the Gentiles did not have the law, and he brings these 19 indictments against the Gentiles, the Jews had the law, but they never kept the law. They are lawbreakers. And under the condemnation of God and the judgment of God. And if they were going to escape that judgment, they needed, like the Gentiles, to embrace this gospel, this glad tidings. They need to have this righteousness imparted by Christ and by God from Christ to faith and faith alone. And then in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul did something, does something very interesting. You know what he does? In verses 1 to 20... The Apostle Paul takes up an objection of the Jews. And he has just told the Jews to need the gospel and the Gentiles have the gospel. So in his mind, he is seeing Jews reading this epistle and hearing this epistle read in the church. And he imagines in his mind the Jews saying something like this. Well, if what you say is true, what is the importance of being a Jew? So it means that there was no significance to being a Jew. The Jewish people were not special. They were not in a unique position. What was the point of having the law if we are in the same boat as the Gentiles? That's the objection that is being raised. And the Apostle Paul goes on in that same epistle, in that same chapter, and he emphasizes two things. He shows the importance of the Jew. 
that they were given the law of God, the decrees of God. They had the prophets. They had everything God. They were special people of God. He showed that. And also he showed them the, the, the function of the law see, as far as the Jew was concerned. But in the whole process, he shows clearly that the Jews still need Christ like the Gentiles. They did have a special place in the economy of God, but they never fulfilled that purpose. And therefore, they forfeited that position. And all men, Jew and Gentile alike, are under the wrath of God. And therefore, all need the same gospel. That's what Paul is saying to them. See, so he's not saying it didn't matter that the man was a Jew. As a matter of fact, he, in, in a real sense, he's saying, you Jews had privilege after privilege after privilege. You are God's special people. You were given the law. But you took this privilege and you abuse it. With every privilege comes responsibility. But you failed in that regard. Therefore, like the Gentiles who had no law, they're condemned. But you are also condemned because you had greater light than them, but you never lived it to the light that God gave you. So Paul is saying here, all men need this gospel. The Jews need it. The Gentiles need it in the process. And then... In chapter 3, verse 21 to 23, as he's coming to the close of chapter 3, he makes the, the mighty statement about this whole doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. And he shows how that the way that God has done it is in keeping with God's character. In other words, do you know that God just not could not carte blanche just say, I forgive you? Are you aware of that? Whatever God did, God had to be the just and the justifier of the ungodly. But in justifying the ungodly, God had to do it through the process of justice. And that is Paul's argument. See? Paul is pointing out that the only way a man can be justified is the, the way through Christ. It was the only just way God could justify man. In other words, God was just in venting his wrath on his son. And, and his son taking the sin of the world. When the son did that, his wrath was poured out on his son. See? There could have been no forgiveness. Had not God's wrath been poured out on his son. God had to act justly in harmony with his character. He's a God of love, but he's a God of justice. He loved us. And he saved us. But he could not save us without meeting his justice. And his justice had to be meted out on his son. That's the glory of the gospel. The just God is able to justify a sinner because God acted justly in connection with his character. He did not violate his character to justify you. So I want to say to you, the gospel has solved the human predicament. And that's one of the great marvels of biblical truth. You compare the biblical doctrine of salvation and understand what the Bible teaches and you begin to see understand the character of God, the wisdom of God, the intelligence of God. Marvelous, the Apostle Paul does that. So what Paul does in chapter 3, when he pronounced this justification by faith, he shows you that in, in justifying men, God still acted justly. According to his righteous and his holy character in the process. And I would suggest you that that verse constitutes one of the greatest and noblest statements in the whole realm of scripture, when he says that God acted justly in justifying the ungodly. It's a marvelous statement. In that. And then we come to chapter 4. And here now in chapter 4, this is what Paul does. The Apostle Paul is going to prove that what he is teaching about justification by faith is not contrary to Old Testament teaching. So what Paul does in chapter number 4, and he does it in a very marvelous way, he shows to the believers 
that God has always dealt with man on the basis of faith and faith alone. So what does he do? He reaches into the files of the Old Testament and he takes out a man called Abraham. And he asks the question, when was Abraham justified before God? When was Abraham declared righteous before God? Chapter 4. You know what Paul says? 430 years before the law came, Abraham was justified. And Abraham believed God and what? It was counted to him for righteousness. So Paul is saying, what I'm teaching you is not something new. Read your Old Testament. And you'll see that this principle of justifying and making a person righteous on the basis of faith was actually demonstrated in the life of Abraham. So in chapter 4, what the Apostle Paul is actually doing is that he is vindicating this doctrine, this teaching of justification by faith. And he takes exhibit number one. He says, here's Abraham. This is a man that was justified when he believed. But when did he believe? Did he believe when he had the law before the law? 430 years before the law, he was justified by faith. So it's nothing new. Don't be alarmed because though I'm teaching you some new doctrine, Paul is saying. You know, don't, don't panic. This is something that is consistent how God has dealt with man. And then the other thing that Paul does in chapter number 4 is that he brings a number of quotations from the book of Psalms. And he mentioned even David talked about the Lord being gracious and forgiving men sins. Happy is the man whose sins are pardoned by the Lord. See? God acting graciously in the process. So even in the Psalms, he shows that in the Psalms that God, David recognized that God acted graciously. It's God that pardons. It's God that forgives. And God does it gratuitously. He does it freely. He does it out of grace, out of love. There's nothing you can do or I can do to wring God's hand and say, forgive me. He does it when we act in faith. And we believe and we trust his son. That's the argument that the Apostle Paul does in this. And by the way, let me suggest to you that you can never understand the story of the children of Israel from beginning to end until you understand the principle of faith in God dealing with them. That's how he dealt with them throughout their journey. It was all a matter of faith. Trusting him is what the wilderness journey is all about. Do you know that? And by the way, there's a parallel, I, I hope you know, between Israel and us. Uh, just like they were in bondage before and under the bondage to, to the Egyptians, the Bible considered Egypt a world, we were in bondage to the world. And just like they had a master man called Pharaoh, we have a master that even greater than Pharaoh, it's called the devil. We were in bondage. Read Ephesians chapter 2. According to the spirit that no work of the children of disobedience. We like Israel were in bondage. See? And then what happened? God brought redemption. The lamb was slain in the Old Testament. And uh, that was what redemption was about. And we were brought out. So we, there's a parallel between what happened to Israel and what has happened to us. We were in bondage, then we were set free by the power of God, by the way. In the redemption of the lamb, Christ is the lamb of God. But don't forget that after we redeem, that's the beginning. We now got a journey, it's called a wilderness journey, brother. That's where we are, see. And what God wants you to understand is that you're going to have to trust Him by faith on this journey. So what happened the first time they get delivered? Next to the... No water. What are you going to do? You just saw all these great miracles when the Lord drunk fear in the, in, in the sea and, and, and did all these great ten great miracles. Now you come to a little water and you're crying. You're bawling and got no water. 
And then you want food, manna. You want quails. You want flesh. Return to flesh. We had the leeks of the garlic down in Egypt. Let's get back down there. Sugar down there. You know. A preacher used to say that. My wife knows what I'm talking about. Every time he's preaching, he says, sugar down there. Sugar down there. Man. But you know what? Again, they want flesh. They want quails. But what, what is it all about? It's a matter of faith. Can you trust me? I've redeemed you. I've used my power to redeem you. I'm carrying you to the promised land. You're going to have trials and problems along the way. It's like a wilderness journey. But you're going to have to learn to trust me to meet your needs. That's what you're going to have to do. See? And then of course, even when he does give them what they want. Manna in the morning, manna in the night, manna in the evening, manna in the daytime, manna, 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 manna. Give us something to eat, Lord. <laughs> and the Bible says we're like angels food. But you can't satisfy people. Because it's not what people need, it's what they want. That's their problem. See, God gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want. And we are so discontent with what God has given. By the way, you know, we have something called standard of living. I don't know who created that. What, what is a what is a, a normal standard of living? You tell me. See, you know we eat like kings, and people in parts of Africa ain't got nothing. You ever you ever sat down and wonder how many people die every day of starvation? Your mommy cook, give you porridge. I want a porridge. I want. You know, down the drain. See, have you ever thought that people that would just wish they could go down the drain and get it? We have not learned to be content. We've not learned to trust God in the process. And in this wilderness journey, uh, is where a lot of discontent. By, and by the way, that's where you really proved whether you have faith or not. See? That's where God tested to see who had faith or not. And that's where you and I are being tested as we go through this journey. Do we have faith to trust Him or not? That's the journey that Paul is talking about. So in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul proves that the principle he's teaching about justification by faith is no new principle. And he's telling these, old, these people who are objecting to what he's saying, look, go back to your Old Testament, look at the life of Abraham, that, that man that everybody looks up to, realize that he was justified by faith before the law even came. And then go, go into your Psalms, your sweet songbook, and, and see the Psalm is talking about God's pardoning mercy, his favor, his blessing, all of him, none of you. You can't wring God's hand, it's all of grace, all of love. That's what Paul is teaching. And then we come to chapters 5 and 8, and where we have our difficulty for most of us as far as interpreting the book of Romans. Okay? And we tend to divide these chapters this way. Uh, most say that chapters 5 verses 1 to 10, the Apostle Paul is talking about the seven consequences of justification. And if you go to chapter 5 verses 1 to 10, you'll find the Apostle Paul lists at least nine things. People say seven, but at least nine things that we have as a result of being justified by faith alone. Let me mention this. Number one, we got peace with God. Number two, we have access to God's presence. Number three, we have endurance or patience, the capacity to endure. See? Number four, we have, we, we learn, we get experience. Number five, we have hope. Number six, we have love. Number six, we have safety. Paul says uh, clearly that being justified, we should be safe from the wrath of God. In other words, those are the things that Paul points out in chapter 5 that we have. Those are the fringe benefits. 
of coming to faith in Christ and being justified by faith alone. See? And by the way, you can't buy these things. There's not enough money in all the world that can buy peace and access to God and endurance and experience and hope and love and security. See, You can't do that. These are treasures, real treasures. But sad to say we don't value these things see, in the process. And then from verse 5 to 11 to the end of chapter 8, this is where people say, well, the Apostle Paul is now dealing with the whole doctrine of sanctification. I want to suggest to you that this is a serious misunderstanding of what Paul is teaching from chapter 5 on to the chapter number 8. And I would say to you, uh, as I said before, it's very ironic that people who say that this is about sanctification, that you can take my word for it, do it, do the exercise when you go home, read from chapter 5 to chapter 8. And if you find the word sanctification once, you come back and tell the church the pastor was wrong. I, I, would, I would take that, okay? It is not there. It is simply not there. Let me suggest to you what the Apostle Paul is doing after he has defended his doctrine. Of, number one, you remember, uh, he's giving the gospel, chapter one, basically. He's talking about the gospel, okay? Uh, number two, he's showing you that the Jews need the gospel because, the, the Gentiles need the gospel because of these 19 indictments against them. In chapter three, uh, chapter three, he talks about the, the, the Jews, the Jews needing the gospel. Chapter three, he introduces to the whole subject of justification by faith in the process. Chapter four, he defends justification by faith. And then what does he do after he has done that? Chapters five, six, seven, eight. What is he doing in those chapters? I want to suggest to you that what the Apostle Paul does once he's established that his doctrine is an authentic doctrine that has a biblical foundation in the Old Testament. I want to suggest to you that what Paul is concerned about from, from that point on to the end of chapter number 8 is the Apostle Paul is showing and demonstrating and arguing and asserting that once we have this salvation... We have a salvation that is certain and full and final and that nothing at all can disrupt it, that we are completely and absolutely secure in that salvation. That's what the theme is about from chapter 5 to chapter 8. And and it is a bigger theme than that subsidiary theme of of sanctification. And I, I want to say to you that what the Apostle Paul wants to show to you that When you come to Christ and faith, God caters for your entire future after that point. That's what Paul is going to show you. You are absolutely secure in Christ once you have trusted Christ as Savior. And God has taken care of you from then until you are glorified. And Paul will then begin to itemize the way in which God takes care of you and guarantees your security. That's what this is all about, In other words, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 is about the security of the believer. So I would say to you, chapter 1, these were sin. Then Paul deals with the whole matter of, of, of salvation. And then Paul deals with the whole matter of security of the believer. And how secure we are in Christ. The fullness and the absolute certainty that uh, what we've trusted Christ, we are saved. Now, let me tell you how he does this very quickly. Number 1. And he tells us that, and we're not going to argue with, with the others. We tell you that because of the, the, the amount of blessings that you have. And I mentioned that people normally say seven, six or seven blessings. Uh, I mentioned those. Peace, access, patience, experience, hope, love. But Paul goes on in that chapter and says we got justification, we got reconciliation. And then we got something called the cancellation of wrath. See? Being justified by faith 
we're no longer under the wrath of God. See? Those blessings make us feel secure. But then in chapter 5 to chapter 5 verse 12 to chapter uh, 6, the next thing that Paul emphasizes that makes you secure is not only these blessings that Paul mentions, but Paul mentions in, in chapter uh, 5, 12 to chapter 6 that you are united to Christ. It is called the union of the believer. That when you put your faith and trust in Christ and you are born again, you are incorporated into Christ. And by the way, this is the secret of victory in the believer's life. Christ in you is the secret of victory. And you will find that Paul will go on in chapter uh, 5, 11 to chapter 6 to show that you were dead with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised with Christ. And because you died with Christ, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. That's the point. You are united to Christ never again to be separated. But the reason why people think it's dealing with sanctification because the implications of that union is that it is a means of getting victory over the flesh. You got a problem with the flesh? The only way you'll ever overcome the flesh is to understand your union with Christ and the fact that you are dead and you're raised with Christ. Dead to the old man and, and reckon it to be so. Count it to be so. And by the way, this is where faith comes in. See, This is where faith comes in. To believe that God, when you, when you got saved, you died with Christ and was buried with Christ and you were raised. With, to believe that and act on that is what faith is about. And that's why Paul said, reckon it to be so, count it to be so, by an act of faith. See? And so on. We'll come to that, of how to get victory over the flesh. Because some of you are reading books, and some of you are trying this, and some of you are going to the gym and exercising, and all you're doing all kinds of things to win over the flesh. You can't win over the flesh that way, my brother. You can't win the flesh that way, my sister. See? The only one way to win over the flesh is to understand your position in Christ, and that you are united to Him. See? You become part of Him. You're dead with him, buried with him, resurrected with him. And the old man has been buried. And we'll talk about how that actually works out in our daily lives. We've come to that great passage of scripture. But then there's something else that Paul does to show you how completely secure you are. In chapter 7, he deals with the whole question of the law. How did you get from under the sentence of the law and the judgment of the law? What did Paul say? You remember what he said? Well, if I'm married to my wife and I want to marry another woman, uh, what happened? One of us got to die. So if she die, I am free to go and marry another. And Paul's whole argument in chapter 7 is this. That the law has no more control over you because when Christ died, you died. That's the argument. And he uses the illustration of a man married to a woman and he's only free to marry another when the wife dies. And Paul's whole point in that is that when Christ died, you died to the law. So you're no longer married to the law. You can now be married to Christ. That's the whole argument chapter number 7. So you are no longer, let me put it this way, the law no longer hangs over your head. Like the sword of the mil- the, the mil- I forgot his name, the muscle or something like that. The sword over your head. No, the law no longer holds over your head. As for the believer, the law is done. Why is it done away? 
It is done away because you died when Christ died. And therefore, the law has no more power over you. See? You read chapter 7, you see, that's the marvelous way. That's the analogy that Paul uses. But the emphasis there is, he is dealing with your security. You're absolutely secure because being united to Christ, the law no longer holds thunder for you. You're now married to Christ because you're divorced from the law. You can only divorce from the law because you died. Now, if you never died, the law is still all over your head, my brother, my sister. That's the point Paul is making. But once you die in Christ, the law no longer is over your head. So you're secure. And then in chapter number 8, the Apostle Paul points out to you, because of your union in Christ, you've got something else. You've got the Holy Spirit that now dwells in the believer, and the Holy Spirit that dwells in the believer is now working mightily in the believer. And you know what the Holy Spirit does? Let me tell you what it does. Number one, it gives you a new mind. Chapters 8, verse 5 to 9, a new mind. You now have a different mind altogether. See? Number two, Paul says in, in verses 12 to six, 12 to 13 of that chapter, it enables you to mortify the flesh. See? That's why I say to you, without this concept of the union of Christ and this idea of depending on the Holy Spirit to give you victory with the flesh, you can never have victory with the flesh. His job is to help you to mortify the flesh. And then uh, chapter uh, verses 18 to 25, it gives you a grand view of God's ultimate purpose. That whom he did call, he did just the whole the whole spectrum. Paul says that that's the whole view. What when God saves you, the whole purpose of God saving you is to bring you to glory. That's the whole thing, and he traces from the calling to your, your, your predestination, your calling, right down to your salvation, right down to glory. And Paul is saying you are secure because he has begun a good work, and you really will perform it until the end. That's the whole spectrum. For the time he saved you, he already glorified you. That is Paul's thinking. You are secure. That's Paul's argument. And then, of course, uh, Paul says in chapter uh, 8 and verses 26 to 27, he says that something else the Holy Spirit will do. The Holy Spirit prays for you. He intercedes for you. Even when you don't know how to pray. When all you can utter is groanings. He said, the Holy Spirit understands your groanings yeah, and, and he intercedes for you according to God's will. You're groaning because there may be something troubling in your life, your, your weakness or whatever. And you don't even know how to pray about this thing. You, don't, you just seem so overwhelmed. And then the Holy Spirit comes and said, listen, I'm praying for you in the will of God. And this is the will of God, even your sanctification. See? The Holy Spirit is at work in your life. By the time you finish with chapter number 8, you begin to understand that what the Apostle Paul ends up saying, what or who can separate us from what? The love of Christ. And then he goes with that great peon of praise. You know, he says, should um, principalities of powers, he says, should death, should life, should angel. He said, should things in heaven, things on the earth, can there be anything to separate us from the love of Christ? That's the summary of what he's been saying in chapters 5 to 6. Nothing can separate you. You are absolutely secure. That's why he concludes in chapter 8 by saying there's nothing at all. Look at what I've told you, 5, 6, and 7. What else can there be to separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus? And brother, we need to feel that security sometimes because, believe you me, we don't feel safe sometimes. 
I don't know about you. <laughs> but days when you get up, you just don't feel saved. There's some days you get up that uh, I can't put it. You're like, you got up on the wrong side. But you see, you can't live on your feelings. You always comes back to faith and taking God's word and rebuilding your most holy faith and going back to the, whole, the word of God, fortifying yourself in the word, getting strength and getting security there. So no one can rob us of our salvation. We're absolutely secure and no one and nothing at all can separate us in that salvation. We're going to stop there tonight. And, uh, but that is basically an, a panoramic view of the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And the, the, the chapters where I think that you and I will differ on is chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. Because once you've got the Schofield Bible, somehow it is etched in your mind that this is all about sanctification. My task is to show you, as we begin to study this book, that the Apostle Paul is not dealing with sanctification. Sanctification comes in in the process. But what Paul is really dealing with is your security in Christ. Why you should feel absolutely secure in Him. See, that's what it's about. So that he can conclude and tell you that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate. And by the way, he even asked, in Christ? He said, it's Christ that justifies you. So how you how you separate in the process? You mean Christ says one thing, one time he says something else then? He justify you, but he want to unjustify you now? He didn't know, he didn't make up his mind what he was going to do in the first case? <laughs> Paul's argument is impossible. Once he justify you, he justify you. See? He justified forever, you say forever. Uh, by dear friend, let's hold on to these biblical truths. We're going to need them. As we, the hour gets dark, the situation uh, increasingly becomes difficult. And situations begin to change. You're going to see things. And uh, listen, the only thing we're going to have ultimately is God's word to hold on to God's word. We've got to hold on to this, grab onto it and, and maintain it. See? We're going to need it. If you don't need it now, you're going to need it down the road. But let's learn it now so that when we need it, we can pull it out. We can use it for his glory and for our benefit. Let's pray. Father, take your word tonight. And I hope tonight we have not confused the people who are here. I hope that we've given them some understanding of the broad theme of the Apostle Paul in Romans and how he works that theme out. Above all, I pray that we would grasp not only the fact that we have a glorious gospel, a gospel that is for all men. It is a work that God does, not man does. And that God today is providing a righteousness for men. And that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not by any human effort or any self-righteousness on our part that we'll ever make it to heaven. We just simply have to accept what God has provided, the way of salvation. But Lord, we thank you that you didn't end there. You started there. But we thank you for the glory of knowing that you have taken care of our entire future. From salvation to glorification. And you have made us secure in the ways that Paul enunciates. You've blessed us with over nine different forms of blessing, reassuring us. And then you've united us with your Son, uh, given us victory over the flesh, victory over the law in the process. And then you've given us your Spirit to help us and to guide us. Lord, with these means available to us and given to us, sure with the Apostle Paul, we should ask who should separate us from the love of Christ. What can... Things in heaven and things in earth. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Oh Lord, give us security. Give us the delight in this security. And help us to know it's only possible 
in Christ and through Christ. May we carry this glad tidings and this message to the end of the world. And may we not grow weary in declaring the truth as it is in Christ. That God has acted justly in His character. In punishing us in His Son so that He may justify the ungodly. How unspeakable are your wisdom. How unsearchable are your ways. Oh Lord, may we glorify you. May we praise you. May we adore you. May we honor you. May we worship you. May we serve you. Lord, may we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be sure to join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy starts to dig deep into our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street, in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.